Well, I am sure you're familiar with shipping containers and the ships that carry them. And in the last 12 months, we've certainly heard a lot more about the challenges of moving goods around the world. But do you ever wonder how they are insured and the kind of risks they're insured for? Well, hello, I am Matthew Grant. And if you've just found us, welcome aboard. This week, we're talking to a company that many people may not have heard of, but which has also been in the news recently with the proposed acquisition by S&P. IHS Market has been providing data and analytics across a range of industries, including insurance. And for anyone wondering about the valuation of some recent insurtech companies, IHS Market Evolution makes a great case study for both organic growth and growth by acquisition. Marine insurance, both hull, that's the ships, and the related exposures to cargo is considered today as one of the significant areas of opportunities for companies offering new ways to understand the risk and loss potential in an area that until recently at least has been something of a mystery to insurers. I'm grateful to George Devries and Turlock Mooney from IHS Market for opening the doors and allowing us to shine some light into the mysterious world of shipping, containers, and a glimpse of what the future might hold. Really interesting discussion today. I think most of us, well, all of us actually are exposed to what happens with shipping and containers uh, wherever our goods come from around the world. Clearly, there's a lot of risk out there, and that is you know, part of why people are insuring it. Um, IHS Market is behind a lot of the data that's being used, not just in shipping, but in other areas. And generally around the world, they are a source of information and insights into critical areas shaping today's business landscape. According to the website, I can see, George, and turn up, you've got 50,000 customers in 140 countries. I thought 150 companies was quite impressive as customers, but really major organization. And I also good to see that now the go-ahead has been given for the S&P acquisition of $44 billion. So really interested in hearing a little bit more about um, what you're doing. So, uh, George, good morning. Welcome to you. Good morning, Matthew. Thanks for having me. And Turlock, good morning to you as well. Are you based in Amsterdam? Yeah, good morning, Matthew. Yes, I'm based in Amsterdam currently. And I see that is the fourth busiest port in Europe. So uh, I'm sure you've got some first-hand experience of what we're talking about today, both locally and from your career in the past. Yes, certainly. And then, George, yeah, you know a thing or two about ships, because I see you were seven years in the Royal Navy. So I guess you've had a very first-hand experience of uh, what it takes to navigate things carefully and not bump into things or lose things. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much been the defining um, process of, of my professional craft uh, is uh, navigating ships and trying not to, to bump into things, um, both in the RM and, and then lastly where I work for a container shipping company and, and then loss prevention in the P&I world. Now, we're going to be talking about containers. And when you and I spoke before, I was surprised by the number of containers you can get on one ship. And I definitely had underestimated it. We're going to come back and talk about it later on. But uh, that's my kind of question for our listener out there is how many containers do you think you can squeeze into a ship? And you've got to listen all the way to the end to get the answer to that one. Um, so we're going to talk about the day in the life of a container ship. So, George, just talk us through, you know, we all see these things on the sea, but what, what's really happening from start to finish it, for a container and the ship it's traveling on? We see them on the sea and we see all the containers above the deck. But we've also got to remember there's that much, if not more, underneath the deck as well in the holds. What happens is these vessels will go to a place such as China, Shanghai, somewhere like that. The containers will be lo- will be loaded, or term is stuffed, at a factory. They're taken by road or rail into the port where they're booked in. 
Uh, they could spend a couple of weeks in, in the ports and the containers are moved around within the port as they get closer to the jetty, loaded into the container ship. And again, that's a whole interesting cycle because the containers weigh different amounts. They may have goods that are dangerous, so they have to be put in a certain part of the ship. So it's, it's real, real bit of a Tetris game of, of getting these, um, these containers, these boxes in, in the right places. And you've got to unload and offload these containers at the right ports. Um, and then put other containers on, take other containers off, and they're on very tight schedules. And I guess anything like that is that just-in-time type of management then accentuates the risk, both you know, the risk of things going wrong because everything's moving fast, but also, as we've seen, and we're going to talk a little bit about later on, you know, what happens when you get someone jamming up the Suez Canal and things like that. So as you think about then containers and from an insurance perspective, you know, what kind of things can go wrong with the container that, that would be of interest to somebody insuring it? There's quite a lot that can go wrong with containers. The problem is a container is a metal box. You can't see inside a metal box. So you're very beholden on the people that stuff that pack these containers to be truthful about what's in them. So especially with, with weights and dangerous goods, you can have containers that crush everything below it because they weigh far too much. Or you could have dangerous goods um, that shouldn't mix with other chemicals and stuff like that. And also we have the problems of of stacking containers correctly, securing them correctly in in rough weather. You can get barometric rolling, and containers can, unfortunately, and do quite often fall over the sides. And then, as I said, it's a metal box, and really you can put anything in it. Really, containerization was a great idea to help move goods around the world but it has opened itself up to a myriad of exploitations. Ensuring them can, can be complex. You've got a great long list of doom and gloom there, George. I hope you haven't put off any marine underwriters or cargo underwriters from writing containers. But of course, that's where IHS Market comes in in terms of being able to help track that. One of the things that intrigued me about containers is can each one be subtract independently? Do they have a, like a, a license plate on them or some way that you can identify where they are in the world at any one time? All containers ha- have a, a number on them for that individual box, and that can be tracked because that's on a bill of lading, and it says where it's going, who the consignee is, and the containers are booked in. Every move that's made in, in the port, that, that's referenced, and you can just pick them up and track them that way. Uh, when it's booked into a vessel and then goes over the rail and goes to the next port of call, is, is by the container number, it's all tracked. So people have talked about having sensors on containers so that you can actually track them remotely. Is that mm-hmm. starting to happen or is it still the way you referred to it? It sounds like it's still a manual process. Someone has to actually log in the container on some system. And then that presumably that data is available to anybody who has authorization to be able to go and look at it. The question is with the individual container tracking is where do you put the sensor? If you put it on the outside of the container, the fear is it's going to get knocked off. If you put it inside the container, then a lot of times you've got to retrofit the container and how do you put the power supply in it? Equally, how does the container right at the bottom of the stack send its signal out uh, to, to the satellite? Uh, a lot of the way they're doing it is, is by a hive system. So the ones internally can talk to one that has line of sight to the satellite and broadcast out uh, as, as a collective. Uh, I know Maersk, for example, ha- have looked at this in, in depth and have started building containers that have the individual tracking systems in there because you can start getting very uh, important data from them, uh, especially with refrigerated containers or reef containers, as they're known. 
they carry cargo uh, that are temperature sensitive. And so if you get a power cut within the ship and you lose refrigeration, they can alarm off those. But for the main part, it is still very much a manual computerized way of tracking. Well, I'm never going to look at a container ship again. Now you've told me that the containers are all talking to each other and they're able to communicate with the, the one that's the top of the pile and can speak to the rest of the world. opens up all sorts of intriguing possibilities for some kind of science fiction film in the future. But back to the topic we're discussing. I want to come over to Turlock now because you are responsible for some of the products that IHS is releasing. And we've already started to discuss some terminology, and I love the fact that containers get stuffed, George. I'm going to find out in a minute for you what happens when they get emptied. Is that unstuffed? But for now, uh, Tela, can you talk a little bit about the data set you've got from Global Shipping Lines and then what it is you're looking at with your new data set? The data I look after is is uh, our port performance data, uh, and that essentially allows you to measure and compare container port and terminal performance to a fairly granular level. We can build uh, various metrics uh, that we have standardized the definitions for across the global industry, uh, things like vessel waiting times uh, or anchorage times, uh, time required to prepare the vessel for work, cargo and loading times, that kind of thing. You can see if one port or terminal uh, requires vessels to wait longer than another and, and how much uh, additional time is required and whether one port or terminal can unload the vessels faster if you keep the workload constant, uh, that kind of thing. How is that being used in from your clients and are, are there any insurance applications that you're seeing on the back of that? You can benchmark your terminal or port with competitors you can also use it to, you know, investigate specific operational issues um, or longer term causes of, of delay and congestion. And then from a supply chain perspective, um, you can uh, track congestion levels. Uh, you can identify trends that might indicate worsening delays or more congestion around the corner, uh, so to speak. And also it would be used by maritime and logistics professionals for supply chain planning, you know, to assess efficiency levels of port, risks of delays, uh, look for maybe alternative routes where there, there would be less risk of, of delays and congestion, that kind of thing. Lots of really interesting things in there. I could see a couple of those that could be related to insurance, but from either of you, I guess, are there specific applications now that you're starting to see underwriters use from this, this data on the port calls and the performance of the, the ports and terminals? One of the things we, we need to look at is potential damage to cargo, uh, and, and that can happen in, in a myriad of ways. I spoke earlier about uh, refrigerated containers, and if there's a delay in ports of movement of the containers within that port, you can have unplugged containers, um, so the compressors aren't working, so the temperature variance may damage the cargo within the containers. One of the major issues we see at the moment is soybeans, uh, especially off China with congestion there. Uh, because of the temperature variance on the ship, the sweating of the hole, because it's metal, uh, you can get caking on the top of of, of the cargo load in, in, the, in the hole, and that that's where the top of the very top of it becomes hard and the 
receivers will reject the cargo out of hand because that first little layer has caked and they will say, well, the whole, whole cargo is written off. In truth, it's just that little, little bit to begin with, but they will find a way to reject the cargo. And, and in insurance terms, that, that can be very expensive very quickly. You mentioned delays in there. Turk. just coming back to you, you know, we heard earlier this year about the blockage in the Suez Canal, whether it's COVID, Brexit or everything else that's going on. What, what is the data telling us just now about what's happening with with movement of shipping you know, relative to what we might be seeing in the press and, and how things were earlier this year? The direct operational cause of the, the congestion that we're seeing at the moment is um, this excessive growth in what we call average coal sizes, um, another industry term there. Um, coal size is the average number of containers that you, you load, restow or unload per vessel coal. Um, and the data tracks coal size growth. And since uh, the end of 2020, um, it's been growing at a very high rate indeed. Uh, and what that means effectively is that you have a lot more cargo coming um, into the port at one time. But then on the other side of the equation, you have really fixed in infrastructure. And in the case of the U.S. West Coast, fixed labor really as well. Um, so you have vessels coming in where they're offloading 7,000 boxes on average now compared with maybe four or 5,000 um, in 2019. But you don't have any uh, additional infrastructure or labor really to handle that. And in fact, uh, that side of the equation has even been uh, decreasing in effectiveness uh, as the congestion has worsened. The data set allows you to see um, these kind of uh, factors that are, are driving uh, a lot of the problems that you see at the ports and, and in supply chains at the moment. That's really interesting because I suppose to the layperson, we think these delays have been caused by you know, the factors I mentioned before. But actually what you're saying is, is almost the reverse. It's actually there's such an increase now and in concentration by shipping and our sharp-eared listeners will have had a hint there to the size of containers on the ships. Um, but, the, but the real kind of choke point is actually the capacity of the ports to be able to, to lift the containers off and, uh, and unstuff them. I'm looking forward, George, to reminding me what this word should be. Uh, so that's, that's really interesting. And then are you able to do forecasting of what you'd expect to see next year? Because I can imagine that's actually very useful from an underwriting perspective if people can understand if this risk is going to go up or down to the supply chain in the next few months. We do use the data to um, underpin our forecasts for what's going to happen in terms of the, the port congestion phenomenon, uh, and wider supply chains uh, indeed as well. That all allows us to see, um, you know, whether things are going to improve um, in, the, in the short term or, or it will take longer than that. By the way, we think it will uh, certainly take a lot of time for that to happen, um, you know, given the backlogs of, of cargo and the fact that inventory levels are uh, very, very low at the moment, and, and we're in a busy uh, time of year for shipping anyway, um, really to uh, eliminate the congestion or reduce it substantially, you'd need a very big drop in demand. Um, and we, we don't see that happening for some time. And even when it does, it will still take uh, many months to clear the backlogs. Well, we're recording this uh, almost exactly a month before Christmas Day. So I guess a warning for anybody out there, 
if you haven't already put your Christmas wish list in or ordered your presents, then uh, prepare to be disappointed because it could be a bit longer before things get unblocked. That was really helpful. Tell for you as you look at the data that's available and what you want to offer to your clients, there are many sources of data out there. And you know, the beauty of what we're doing is tapping into a network that often is either very creative about how it can get data or actually has a whole different set of clients and get data. What would be on your on your Christmas wish list for new sources of data to complement what you're already doing? So currently our, our data in this data set is um, we cover really the ocean side metrics uh, up as far as the crane information. One next logical step would probably be to start looking closer at the land side stuff as well. Uh, so things like what we call cargo dwell time, which is the amount of time uh, cargo on average has to spend from offload from the vessel until it exits the gate and is loaded onto a truck or something like that. Uh, so that's a very interesting metric to track as well. Uh, so you see how much uh, time the cargo has to spend in the terminal itself. Uh, and then other other things related to, say, the intermodal side, so the trucking and the rail side and um, uh, truck turn times, uh, what we call the metrics, the gate out metrics when, when the cargo is actually released from the port. And we see on, on the U.S. West Coast a lot of challenges in, in, in that respect as well. So those kind of metrics uh, would also be very useful for us to track and, and give a, a more holistic picture of what's going on at the port. I can see a convergence of what's happening with telematics for fleet auto and commercial trucking sort of starting to link that back in there. So, uh, yeah, you may well get a call from somebody who has a solution or partial solution for you. Uh, George, I guess just passing that question back to you as you look maybe more broadly across what you're doing at IHS Market. Any other areas of data or kind of complementing the data that you've already got that you're looking out for? For my side, looking at, at the maritime, we're very much reliant on on AIS data, automatic identification ship data. It, it's a very valuable system because um, it's, although it's only been in existence for 30 years, uh, the technology that underpins it is VHF radio, which is 90 odd years old. And um, same as when you lose signal in your car when you when you drive too far away from an antenna, exactly the same happens with AIS. So we do have areas in the world that that are gapped. And so what we're currently looking at is ways to track vessels by other means. And a lot of that, again, as Turlock was saying, is looking at where the cargo movements are. And so where vessels have gone, if we say we can't see them physically enter the port because of gap in the AS systems, then we can look at the paper trail, linking that supply chain fully in from factory to consignee. Interesting. So just to make sure I understand this, so the AIS system is essentially what ships, I forget the size, but above a certain tonnage have to have, which, as you said, is a kind of transponder that, I mean, and you can get those quite fun free apps that can tell you when you do see your cargo ship, you know, what that ship is or any kind of ship. But there are certain blanks or blind spots where suddenly it goes off off screen or therefore you can't track those. What about things like satellites? So you, are you partnering with companies who've got satellite imagery that you can sort of pick those up or is that just too expensive to do that? Yes, but unfortunately, a lot of satellite providers, especially for imagery, don't like taking pictures of MTC because <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that uh, cost effective. As with a lot of imagery of vessels, a container ship looks like a container ship. What is the difference? How, how can we tell which vessel is which vessel? Uh, so it's certainly an interesting area to exploit and, it, and, it, and it's one we're looking into. And 
George, we've kind of covered a lot in that. I feel I've had a whole new understanding of container ships. But is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add in that is, is relevant to what this topic? What we do on behalf of the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is issue the number plates for ships. So if a vessel is over 300 gross tons and engaged in international trade, they, they require this number plate. And we are the only company that issued that number plate. And uh, when we issue it, we take in vast quantities of data on that ship. And so we are the prime source of data for the maritime world in, in, in that respect. So, George, you talked a lot of information in here. For anyone that wants to go and get access to this data, I know you've got different options about how they can get that. Can you just talk about some of the ways people can get it from you and some of your partners? As I say, well, as, as you touched upon, Matthew, any of those free websites you talked about, sort of your, your marine traffic um, and people like that, ultimately they're used for our data, so it is freely available. We also obviously have our own in-house systems uh, that you can use, uh, but we have partnered with a number of insurance-specific companies. Uh, one, one I can mention is Consirus, who you use our data to underpin their marine quest system. So, George, let's come back to that question about how many containers you can get on a ship. Turlock mentioned earlier on that the average call size, which I now know means um, the number of containers that you lift off a ship, is 7,000. That's an average. So that suggests that my math is correct, that there must be even more you can get onto a ship. So put us out of our misery. What is the largest number of containers you can get on a ship these days? So there are 12 ships sailing around the world today that can have a carriage capacity of 24,000 containers. 24,000 containers. That is phenomenal. And I guess, turn us back to your point about call size, that means 24, well, obviously 24,000 containers that have to come off the ship and then that's where you're tracking all the data. Well, that is incredible. But George, final question for you because I want to try and summarize everything we said into the one thing that you want people to remember. Uh, what is it about all of the things you're doing or that you're seeing out there in the world of containers and shipping that you think is the most important thing to be aware of today? To be aware of just the vastness of the operation that, that, that's going on. Uh, and the fact there are companies such as ourselves that can track that. So uh, as you said yourself right at the beginning, Matthew, the maritime domain is a language all in of itself. And so we can very much help unpick that and make cargo movements and understanding the wider ramifications of that a lot clearer. Well, you, you've certainly both been very helpful for me in extending my understanding. And I've got a whole new language as well that I can bamboozle my friends with and family. So thank you very much. And finally, before I let you go, George, you've been very good in supporting us as a member of Instat London. It'd be great to hear you know, why you decided to do that. You said it yourself earlier in this podcast, it's the creative use of data. Insurance, especially the maritime sector, may historically have been a bit conservative. And now we're seeing this huge and quite timely expansion in the world of data and the use of it. And being able to reach out to all these little companies that use data for insurance is absolutely fantastic. But equally, it's engaging with the insurance markets in a wholesale fashion. I know I, I'm very insular. I'm in my little maritime bubble. But um, you know, speaking with you, speaking with Turlock, it's very quickly how it snowballs out into the wider insurance network and being able to speak to people and network with it in, in that way you know, sparks off those little conversations that suddenly lead to huge, huge new pathways we never knew existed. So great. It's a great organisation to be part of. 
No, thank you for your support. Well, have you got a story you'd like to tell the world? Or maybe you are working at an insurer and trying to figure out what is really going on and who you should be talking to. If you want to learn more about what we're doing at Instec, contact me, Matthew Grant, via LinkedIn, or see what we're up to at www.instec.london or email us, hello at instec.london. So George, for those who have made it this far, we should tell them, what is the reverse of stuffing a container? Depending on where you are in the world, it's either unstuff or de-stuff. You can also cross stuff, but that's uh, maybe a story for another time. (laughs) We should definitely wrap up with that. Okay, thank you. Bye.